Welcome to The Meeting Room, a place to gather and discuss all things relating to meat safety, quality, and production. Last week in the United States, 652,000 cattle, 2.3 million hogs, and 36,000 lambs were harvested. In meat industry news this week, the USDA confirmed a case of African swine fever in the Dominican Republic. Continued advanced precautions and biosecurity are being taken to try to prevent an outbreak in the United States. If you're looking for a vacation spot this year, the Denver Barbecue Festival is taking place September 17 through 19 at Empower Field in Denver. The festival is expected to serve over 30,000 pounds of smoked meats. For $89, you can access all-you-can-eat barbecue and drinks, and it seems like pretty good deal to me. Outside of the actual news, a few updates about this podcast. First off, with the start of the school year coming up and a change in schedule, I'm going to be changing from posting an episode every week to every other week. You can still get your meat science fill throughout the week by following The Meeting Room on Facebook and The Meeting Room Pod on Instagram. Thank you for joining me in The Meeting Room. My name is Brianna Boosman, and I'm excited to have you join me this week. This past year, there has been a big push for locally grown, locally sourced meat products. And when COVID came around, there was some shortages in the market that were kind of scary. There was a lot of uncertainty at the grocery store and really all the way from the farm to the table as to how that meat was actually going to get into the hands of the consumer. And this actually opened up a lot of opportunities for folks who were raising meat animals to begin to directly market their product to the consumer. So there were backups at local lockers, um, but some people who had the ability to get product in at a state or federally inspected plant were able to um, have a market to sell their locally grown meat. And so prior to COVID, there was an interest in local products. People wanted to know where uh, their food was coming from. They wanted to know the story behind that food. And seeing it coming from their local producer, um, knowing that it was from a local farm, went a long ways uh, just in terms of ease of mind and was something that uh, consumers were demanding. These opportunities, being able to do some of that uh, direct-to-consumer marketing, opened up a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of discussions about meat quality, taste, and more. And I always think it's really interesting when I hear people say something along the lines of, I wouldn't buy meat from such and such a store. Uh, What I raise at home is so much better. I would never buy it from the grocery store, Um, or things along those lines. And it is really easy to fall into that trap uh, when you did grow up with meat in your freezer or growing um, and producing those meat animals. But what really is crazy to me is that the meat that's sold in the grocery stores in the United States is, in all honesty, tremendous quality. Um, About 83% of meat in the United States grades choice or prime. But many stores even have premium branded products. So they have uh, kind of their high quality brands that maybe um, have some specific requirements similar to a certified program, such as meeting a specific quality grade, 
which was likely choice or better. Um, and so a lot of times having those is really guaranteeing that there's going to be some really good quality, really high quality product that's being sold in the grocery store. Even Walmart doesn't carry select steaks, it's choice or better. And if you haven't looked at the meat counter um, or that meat aisle at Walmart recently, I highly recommend that you do so. Uh, they have some actually really impressive products. I was very much surprised uh, when I was there a few weeks ago and saw things like tomahawk steaks and lamb products and uh, things that I never would have guessed that Walmart would carry. But anyway, that was a little bit off topic, but they are great quality products and they're in demand by a huge portion of the population. The majority of people in the U.S., who are eating meat are buying their meat from the grocery store. Yet we do see differences when we compare that product to what's in our freezer at home. And I'll even admit it, I grew up eating home-raised beef and I prefer it over store-bought. I don't know if it's something that there actually is differences in flavor or if it's just what I grew up with and that's what I knew. And I'm not saying that what is in the grocery store is bad. In all honesty, it's really great. But we do see some differences in terms of uh, the flavor between things that we consider freezer beef uh, versus what is store-bought. And we wonder what causes these differences. And even more so than that, who is responsible for these differences? Is it the producer or the packer? Who is responsible for the advantage in taste? And so... Um, on most of these episodes that I talk about something that's pretty meat science related, that it isn't an interview, um, most of those episodes that I do, I try to keep them pretty well based on things that I've learned in class from reading research papers or textbooks or have hands-on experience with. This topic, I will admit, is not something that I've ever been taught, so I'm going to answer the questions of what causes the taste difference and who's responsible for the taste difference with uh, the answer of, I don't know the answer to that, but based on what I do know, this would be my theory, or this is what I would hypothesize. And so first off, when it comes to the difference between home-raised versus store-bought, my two theories for why there may be some flavor differences is aging method and packaging. So with aging method, that's also going to tie in with hang time. And aging method specifically is broken into two different categories. We have dry aging and wet aging. And I have talked about this topic more in depth in previous episodes. However, just as a recap, dry aging is aging meat products. So you're storing it in refrigerated temperatures for a period of time without any sort of packaging. It's being exposed to the open air environment, and this allows for evaporative loss. Um, It also does allow for some mold growth. It is not in a packaging, um, and so some of the molds that grow, they are not a food safety concern, because remember we have that uh, refrigerated temperature. However, they can alter uh, some of the flavors within that meat. So we'll come back to that. Uh, But wet aging, on the other hand, is when meat is stored in vacuum-sealed packages, and typically it's large portions of meat, so what we would call primals or subprimals, before they've been cut into steaks and roasts. So they're stored in the vacuum package bags, 
they're not exposed to oxygen and they are not um, exposed to any bacteria or potential contamination um, unless there was something either on the product or in the bag when it went in. But anyway, that's just a brief overview. Your small town local locker is going to use dry aging as their method. And uh, typically when people think of dry aging, they maybe think of some kind of dry aging cabinet um, or something kind of a mixture of fancy, kind of artsy and archaic, um, either in a dry aging cabinet or hanging in a cooler cold cell, something along those lines. However, simply allowing the carcass to hang in the cooler prior to cutting it into those primals and steaks and roasts is a method of dry aging. And so traditionally, a lot of local lockers will let carcasses hang for 10 to 14 days. And honestly, sometimes depending on their um, schedules or different things like that, that time period can be extended even further. And so when this happens, a lot of those uh, flavors can actually be changed. And so if there's evaporative loss, um, those flavors that are in the meat are being more condensed. You're losing weight and moisture, uh, but you still have all of that protein there um, and that flavor really condensing down. Similar to if you think of it compared to like a grape versus a raisin, all of the nutrients my understanding, I guess I I study meat, not all food science, but to my understanding, all of the nutrients that are in that grape are still there in the raisin, you're just missing the moisture. And so because of that, it causes a little bit of a difference in the flavor, in the texture, and things like that. And so aging allows times for the natural enzymes that are in meat to break down protein. And so Having those carcasses hang in that refrigerated temperature allows for that aging to occur in those enzymes to break down protein and improve tenderness. In addition, there's some thought that having carcasses hanging can also lead to tenderness improvements as well from some of that muscle stretching. This dry aging specifically can lead, as I said, to a more concentrated flavor often described as maybe a more nutty, earthy, beefy flavor, and is traditional to what you would see in your local locker. Also, I will mention, even though this is not an aging talk, when I did say that there was mold and stuff that can grow on dry age products, it is all safe and it is all trimmed off before it gets to the steaks, roasts, or ground meat products. On the other hand of that, large packers use wet aging. Letting carcasses hang in a cooler takes up a lot of space, and it's space that these large processors don't have. And so traditionally, in a large packing plant, carcasses are going to be fabricated or begin to be cut down within about 24 hours. And that may change over a weekend or holidays or um, things like that, again, depending on the plant. But it's a much faster turnaround time. And in order to still get those aging advantages, they utilize wet aging. We're putting them into those uh, vacuum sealed bags. And this allows for them to store them a lot easier. Um, They can put a lot of packages on top of each other in boxes in a cold store uh, warehouse and store a lot more product a lot more efficiently. However, when using wet aging, 
you're no longer getting that evaporative loss. You're not getting those molds that could change some of that flavor. Um, and you're not getting that concentrated flavor. Uh, that meat is not losing any weight. Um, and in fact, it often is described to have more of a metallic-y flavor. Just simply through that aging process, they may both get those advantages to tenderness, but it could have some impact on that flavor as well. The next theory that I have to go along with this is packaging. So oftentimes in the small town locker or your um, butcher shop, following that aging time, when the carcass is fabricated, it's cut into steaks, uh, those steaks are then cut, packaged, and frozen. And so this could be either uh, vacuum seal packaging or it could be freezer paper, um, something along those lines. However, they are not left uh, sitting in a retail case where they're exposed to oxygen or anything like that. Uh, they're immediately cut and oftentimes frozen and will then be uh, picked up by you in cardboard boxes to be taken to your freezer until it's time to consume that product. Large packers, those subprimals that they have, um, most of the time aren't going to be cut down into those retail cuts at the packing plant. Um, oftentimes they're either going to go to a co-packer where they're going to be uh, packaged into some of those vacuum sealed uh, products that you may see at the grocery store, or they could go directly to the store or the restaurant uh, where steaks will be cut and packaged there. And not even just cut and packaged, oftentimes at the grocery store there's a meat retail display counter uh, where steaks are in refrigerated temperature but in an open air environment. And so with that, there's opportunities for oxidation to occur, which can cause some changes in color of that product and flavor. Um, it's not necessarily a safety thing. There's some of the just inherent science of different steaks and different cuts can cause more rapid changes in color um, from its exposure to oxygen. Doesn't mean it's unsafe, but it can um, just kind of change its appearance and it can lead to some off flavor development. Additionally, the steaks that you do see packaged oftentimes are either in those vacuum sealed bags, so they're technically still in kind of that aging process, or they're in some kind of modified atmospheric packaging, uh, which means that there may be um, some CO2 gas or some other things in there to help keep that bright cherry red color. And so um, if you ever buy a steak at the grocery store, oftentimes if you open it up out of its packaging, not one necessarily from the retail counter, but one that's uh, been in a cooler case that has plastic over it that you're opening it, it may have more of that kind of metallic-y smell. Um, and a lot of times that's from that aging process where it's been in that airtight container. And so those are my two big theories as to why uh, there may be some differences in terms of flavor. At a local locker, it's going to be dry aged through that hanging process, cut into steaks and frozen, where it's then going to be brought home and thawed when it's cooked. Whereas a large packer, um, it's going to be wet aged, cut into steaks at the store, possibly exposed to some of that oxidation. Um, and then once you get home, you may either cook it right away or you may freeze it and use at a later date. So those are my theories uh, as to that. 
Now the second question was when it comes to who makes the meat taste good, is it the producer or is it the packer? And honestly, that's a million dollar question. And my theory is that it's a little bit of both plus a little bit of Jesus. Both can enhance the product, both can mess it up, uh, but it really all starts at the base with that animal. And so the producer really lays the groundwork. Um, We've talked before that phenotype or the outward appearance of something is caused by genetics and environment. So um, outward appearance could be hide color, could be frame size, uh, but it also can be meat quality. And so it's a outward expression and it's gonna be influenced by genetics and the environment. Genetics can be chosen by the producer. Um, this is where I'd say some of, some of God's hand comes in and what genetics uh, and genetic background that animal really has. Um, and in addition to that, the environment. So feed, housing, health management, uh, weather. Again, there's, there's God playing his hand. Um, those things are going to be a bit more controlled by the producer. So what that animal is actually consuming, um, if they're held in an outdoor lot, if they're in confinement, um, different things like that can impact their growth and their production ability. And really the producer has the opportunity to get the animal to reach its maximum genetic potential. Uh, Once that animal is brought to the packing plant and harvested, you can't add marbling to it once it's been harvested. You can't add weight to it. You can't add fat to it. You can't add uh, lean deposition. Those things are all happening at home before they actually get to the packing plant. In addition to that, the packer, the processor, your local locker, who's ever actually harvesting that animal... Um, has the opportunity to build on that. So as I said, they can't improve the quality or that um, actual estimate of palatability of that animal, um, but they can enhance it. So they're not going to add marbling, but they can do things that can help continue to improve eating experience. First off, clean facilities, having something that's not only improving food safety, but isn't offering any contaminants that could cause off flavors to that product. Aging methods, so that dry aging or wet aging, both of those things can really impact the flavor um, and the overall eating experience of uh, those steaks, those roasts. Cutting method, Uh, this is something that can vary place to place, um, how those animals are actually fabricated, what kind of cuts they keep, whether they're keeping things bone in versus boneless, uh, not maybe necessarily a quality attribute, but can change somebody's perception of that actual product. Uh, The packaging that they use, whether they're using uh, vacuum package bags, freezer paper, um, that modified atmospheric packaging, those things can all impact that final product. And really making sure that it's airtight packaging that doesn't allow for Um, Any contamination doesn't allow for any of that oxidation or spoilage of the product. And then storing the actual product. So on some of these hot summer days, it may not be good for cattle in the feedlot. However, it isn't going to cause their meat to spoil. Whereas in a packing plant, if they don't control that temperature, 
um, that can cause major, major issues, both safety and quality. So uh, being mindful of how they're storing it, making sure that is done properly uh, can improve or can impact the uh, quality and eating experience of that product as well. And so there's other factors as well, but as I said, the producer, in my opinion, is laying the groundwork. Uh, they're really responsible for the base of that eating experience. However, the packer, the processor uh, can build upon that to make it an even better product. When it comes to thinking about meat products, all of those things in that production cycle can go perfectly fine. And then um, it could get to somebody's table and it could be cooked poorly. It could be poorly seasoned. It could be left on the counter too long and it can spoil. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about meat science is that every single step of the production process matters. From the time, even before that animal is born, to the time that you're taking a bite of that steak, roast, pork chop, um, whatever it is, the eating experience can be impacted, both good and bad. You can improve it or you can hurt it, and you don't want to be the one in that process to screw it up. And, you know, I grew up with home-raised beef or home-raised meat, I should say, in my freezer. We'd have beef and lamb, oftentimes would get pork products from a neighbor, or we would buy that at the store, and it I turned out pretty good, I think. But when we did have home-raised meat in the freezer, it was really easy to think that, you know, what we raise is so much better. Even though cattle that we produced, when we would sell calves um, or sell feeder calves that would go to the feedlot, they would end up at the grocery store. So I guess I just have to be careful not to try to bash on that product when it's an important part of the production cycle. Uh, but when it does come to the direct-to-consumer businesses, in my opinion, one of the reasons that there's such a great market for these kinds of products is because of stores like Walmarts, Hy-Vee's, Super Savers. Some consumers are content with the quality and the cost of products that come from those stores. However, others are not, and so they're seeking other options, and they're seeking that story. Uh, they're seeking a home-raised local product, and because of that, there's opportunities for these direct-to-consumer businesses to be built upon and grown. So hopefully this was a good discussion starter on maybe some of the causes of those differences uh, between your home-raised meat products, your store-bought meat products, and who's really impacting that flavor. And uh, that's something to think about tonight as you fire up your grill uh, to cook those steaks, pork chops, or hamburgers. I hope that you really enjoy that product, whether you raised it on your farm or if you bought it at the local grocery store. Thank you for joining me this week in the meeting room, and I look forward to visiting with you again soon.